0: lightning flashed and he was startled by his own whiteness he felt suddenly defenseless he was alone and naked in an unfriendly world lost and forgotten in the storm and darkness something ran behind him and ahead of him it stalked the scrub like a panther it was vast and formless And it was his enemy. Old death was loose in the scrub. It came to him that his father was already dead or dying. The burden of the thought was intolerable. His father couldn't die. The earth might cave in under him in one vast sinkhole, and he could accept it. But without his father, there was no earth. He was frightened as he had never been before. He began to sob. His tears ran salt into his mouth, and he begged of the night, Please! I haven't read much fiction, but Rachel bought me a novel called The Yearling uh, last year, and I've got into it. The, The paragraph I just read portrays a boy alone in the woods, running home in a storm after his father suffers a snake bite. And I wept, not only do I love my dad, but the scene is so true, alone and naked in an unfriendly world, lost and forgotten in the storm and darkness. Who doesn't feel that sometimes? Moreover, something vast and formless does stalk us. And it's our enemy too. Old death is still loose in the scrub. We're reminded of death's power every day. The news is bloody. Doctors try to do what they can to prolong life. But none of them can defeat death. Our bodies age. Some of you feel the wear more than others. Cancer strikes. Other illnesses. Fatigue. We weep over the loss of loved ones. The grave swallows, and there's no power to bring them back. Our experience confirms what the Bible teaches. Things aren't supposed to be this way. Death didn't belong to God's original creation. It's not just the natural end to some fixed chain of events. Death entered the world because of sin... It falls on people because all people sin. Death is our enemy. We can do nothing to escape it. But the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ... ...can and did do something about it. In His grace, God promised a rescue from death for His people. And then He dealt death the decisive blow... ...from which it will eventually suffer ultimate defeat... And I'm here to announce this good news to you. I want to do that this morning from Isaiah 25. Isaiah is both a prophet and a poet. He is a prophet, he is God's mouthpiece. He interprets God's will for mankind. Sometimes that involves exposing our infidelity and how that infidelity leads to one's imminent downfall. At other times, it involves revealing God's, God's much more distant future judgment and salvation. In Isaiah 25, God reveals future wonders. Wonders that should produce shuddering. And wonders that should produce singing. But Isaiah is also a poet. He interlaces everything with, with vivid imagery from, from Israel's past and present To convey the inspired message about the future. The impact is far greater than just giving the facts. Right? It's one thing to tell your wife, I love you. But it's another to say, you're the delight of my eyes. The sunshine in my day. That's far more arresting. Isaiah's imagery arrests us with both the horrors of judgment and the happiness of judgment. Salvation. Now, with that said, I'd like to approach this by reading verses 6 through 10 of Isaiah 25. And then we're going to have to kind of zoom out, step back, and grasp the bigger picture in Isaiah. And then we'll zoom in again to focus on God's extravagant blessings for His people and what their fulfillment in Jesus Christ means for us. So let's begin Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain. Three times we hear it, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 10. God's wonderful blessings shower the people on this mountain. Now, in one sense, these blessings include all, right? Therefore, all peoples, verse 6 says. Not just for Israel, but for all ethnicities, to all kinds of peoples without distinction. And yet, By limiting these blessings to this mountain and no other mountain, Isaiah excludes others who don't belong to this mountain. What does this mountain represent? To whom does this mountain belong? And how does someone come to live upon it? Now, to answer these questions, we need to zoom out a little bit and grasp the bigger picture, the the bigger message that Isaiah has been proclaiming. To begin, we need to see that the Lord will exalt His glorious reign worldwide. The Lord will exalt His glorious reign worldwide. Isaiah's prophecy is full of mountains. Mountains represent kingdoms. Okay, nations would erect their places of worship on the tops of mountains. The Lord has Israel do the same. Not only was there the Temple Mount, where God manifests His presence, but God's anointed king ruled from Zion. And Zion eventually came to include both not only the place of the king, but the Temple Mount as well. So, Mount Zion becomes... God's mountain. The place where God dwells and rules His people in holiness and love. Mount Zion portrays God's reign on earth. God's kingdom. God with His people. But here's the thing. God tolerates no competitors to His mountain. To His reign. And so what we get throughout Isaiah are our pictures of God... ...leveling all the other mountains... ...with their false places of worship... ...and exalting His mountain... ...above all others. So, Isaiah chapter 2, for example... ...begins this imagery where the Lord says... ...the Lord of hosts has a day... ...against all that is proud and lofty... ...against all the lofty mountains... The haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9 continues... This uh, further, when a new king, David, is going to be established on Mount Zion. And what do we get? It says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Again, this is Zion. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So God's reign wouldn't be limited to a chunk of land in the Middle East. His glory will cover the earth. The glory of His kingdom will swallow the earth. Isaiah 24 then continues this same idea, which is crucial since it sets us up for chapter 25. Look specifically at chapter 24, verse 23. It says, Then the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts... Rains on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders, or better, and before his elders' glory. God's reign will shine so brilliant that it will shame the sun and moon, it will shame the celestial lights. That's the mountain we're talking about in chapter 25, verse 6. It's God's mountain. It's a picture of His his glorious, worldwide kingdom... ...exalted above all others. Now, for those who belong to God, that day will mean wonderful blessings. But for those who choose their own ways... ...for those who choose to live by their own laws... ...for those who choose to ignore God... ...this day will be terrible... The Lord will execute universal judgment on the proud. The Lord will execute universal judgment on the proud. That's the next piece we need to see. The promise, if you go back to chapter 24, verse 1, the promise comes there. The Lord will empty the earth. He will make it desolate. And He will twist its surface and scatter its Inhabitants, Verse 2 then shows how the judgment is without distinction. Whoever you are, whatever your social status, God's judgment will find you out. But why will the Lord execute judgment in the earth? Because in their pride, people have rejected the Lord. Look with me at verse 5. They oppose the Lord's laws. People oppose the Lord's laws. Verse 5... The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, and therefore a curse devours the earth. Its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Also, the people on this earth who have broken and rejected God's law, they also oppress others. They oppress others. Isaiah 25, verses 4 and 5, describes the nations as ruthless. It talks about the Lord Himself being a stronghold to the needy in the distress, and a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. But we have to ask, where did the heat come from? It tells us, the breath of the ruthless. Okay? The proud, in other words, are using their strength to consume the weak. What will the Lord make of the proud who oppose His laws and oppress His people? Well, we get several images. One is... A waste of a city. This is verse 7. Chapter 24, verse 7. A waste of a city. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is still. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is still. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. Imagine the world compared to a city without God. The people party it up for centuries. It's one great Mardi Gras, guided by their own passions and lusts. Let's call it the city of man. When the Lord's judgment falls, friends, that party will end. God will make the city of man a wasteland and they will mourn, and they will languish, and they will go unprotected, and no song will prevail in the city of man. Only sighs and sorrow. Another image we get is how the judgment is inescapable. This is chapter 24, verse 17. It depicts a hunter who is running down his prey. And the prey does everything he can to escape the hunter... ...but with every move he only finds another trap... ...and another trap and another trap. And then verse 18 ends with language... ...from the days of Noah's flood... ...the heavens, the windows of the heaven it says are opened... ...and the foundations of the earth tremble. In other words, the weight of God's wrath... ...just like it did in the days of Noah... ...will fall on the earth with utter destruction. And then over in chapter 25... Verse uh, 10 through 12, we see the Lord vanquishing his enemies, this other image. For centuries, Moab has been Israel's enemy. So what Isaiah does here is he takes Moab and he uses it as a representation of evil worldwide to to represent all of the Lord's enemies as a collective group, this Moab. And he says, Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. Now my grandpa was a rancher. Uh, your boots, have they ever smashed hay into a cow patty? If they haven't, some of you probably don't even own boots. If they haven't, I'll tell you, the hay doesn't rise. Neither will God's enemies on the last day. Verse 11 reinforces the idea. Moab will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. Think flailing enemy and the Lord's foot in the middle of his back, shoving him down back further into the mire to put an end The images of judgment in Scripture are awful. And I know it's not popular, nor is it pleasant to think about. But God's love for His holiness demands that He punish sinners. And if I'm to be faithful to the good news this morning, I must also tell you the bad news. God judges rebels, and His judgment will fall with consequences that are awful, that are final, and that are eternal. Those who do not belong to His kingdom will be shut out in this wasteland. But here's the good news. This same God chooses to save rebels from that judgment... ...and give them a place on His mountain. Nobody should escape this judgment. If the reason for judgment is transgressing God's laws... ...and breaking His covenant... How's anybody on God's mountain? Shouldn't everybody fall under the Lord's judgment? The Bible says yes. And yet, the Lord of hosts prepares a banquet for all nations on this mountain. So how did that happen? How did they get there? It's not by their character... It's not by their works. It's not by their cleverness. No, verse 9 says, The Lord saved them. The Lord saved them. But how? How does the God who loves His glory, who will level every competitor to His glory, how does this God welcome lawbreakers into His kingdom? The answer isn't that he does it without punishment. But that he provided a substitute to receive their punishment. In Isaiah 53, so we're still big picture here of Isaiah's message. Isaiah 53 verse 5, we meet an individual, a suffering servant. And the servant God puts forward as a substitute. Okay, Isaiah fifty three verse five says that. Remember what we uh, what we talked about in chapter twenty four verse uh, five. It says they have transgressed the laws, and we're guilty for it, right? Well, Isaiah fifty three verse five. He was pierced for our transgressions. Okay, he was crushed for our iniquities. The guilt we incur for sin must be in, must be punished. That was Isaiah twenty four. Well, the Lord's solution is to place the punishment we deserved on His servant. So anybody's entry to Mount Sion comes at the servant's cost. Okay. Not only that, this particular servant rises from the dead to give people the the, the to give the people he died for his righteousness. Notice these two things, seeing his offspring, making them righteous. You can only do that when you're alive. What's implied in Isaiah 53 is that after the servant dies for their sins, he will also rise for their justification before God, their right standing with God. How does God let anybody into his kingdom then? Well, through the work of the servant. The servant removes transgressions and gives his righteousness. That's servant's name, Jesus Christ. And that's what his cross and resurrection mean. That's what it's about. Now, if you want to go there with me, you can go to Hebrews chapter 12... ...where it kind of pulls these things together for us. And when you hear this from Hebrews 12... ...you tell me how people enter Mount Zion. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. So the mountain we've been talking about in Isaiah. You have come to Mount Zion... ...and to the city of the living God... ...the heavenly Jerusalem It cries out from the ground, Cain, you're guilty. And that's what the cry against us is, guilty, guilty, guilty. You can't enter Zion guilty. But Jesus' blood, it says, speaks a better word. You know what that word is? Forgiven. 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 He is our entry into Zion. And what comes for those in Zion? The most wonderful blessings. Now we're prepared to zoom back in to this verse 6 to 10. On top of sins being forgiven, we find a rich banquet with no remnant of a curse. A rich banquet with no remnant of a curse. This is Isaiah 25 Verse 6, remember how the vine languished in the city of man? Nobody's singing, nobody's drinking, because everything is desolate in the city of man. Not so for the people of Mount Zion. Look at this, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Isaiah uses categories of the Old Covenant... ...to speak of the abundance of the future kingdom. If Israel didn't have grain and wine... ...under the Old Covenant... ...that meant they were under a curse... ...for their wrongdoings, for their sin. But for a rich feast... ...for wine to prosper... ...that said, the people's curse was lifted. Okay? God would pour out His grace and satisfy them with an abundant kingdom. No more want, no more need, no more curse, everything bountiful, everything satisfying. Your highest thoughts don't compare to the feast God will prepare. When you eat today from this table, this is the feast that it's pointing to, that Isaiah is talking about here, that the book of Revelation develops even further. The Lord's Supper is no mere memorial. It is a prophetic sign. It is a prophetic sign to the true feast that is coming. How do we know that the true feast is going to come? Well, one answer is God said so. Right? And God's Word creates history. Okay? It doesn't just predict history. Like, I think this is going to play out like this. It creates the history. Okay? Another is this Jesus Christ is risen. Right? Right? The same Jesus who went into the grave. The witnesses saw him rise, risen from the, the grave. They grabbed his feet. They sat down and ate with him. They touched him. They heard him for 40 days. He appeared to 500 other brothers. And then they witnessed him ascend into heaven. God installed him as king... in the heavenly Mount Zion. And we're just waiting for him... to put the rest of his enemies beneath his feet. The last enemy to put beneath his feet... is death. Death itself. That brings us to the, another wonderful blessing... we see on this mountain. Death swallowed up forever. Death swallowed up forever. Those who belong to the city of man... Revelation talks about they will endure the second death, which is the lake of fire. Not so with the people on Mount Zion. No, death is swallowed up for them forever. You know, a rich feast, which he's just prepared, a rich feast means nothing if we can't enjoy it forever. What good is the feast if we're still veiling our faces for the funeral? But look what God does for those on Zion. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 7. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. How can this be? We can hardly imagine this. Every day, death swallows somebody else. Death, the grape, shuts its mouth and nobody comes out. And we're calling doctors, we're, we're exercising, we're frantically searching for diets that work, we're putting on makeup to cover the age, we're, we're taking the chemo, we're, we're worrying about clean water, we're, we're somebody selling us life insurance, somebody's arguing about gun laws and border walls and terrorist threats and whether babies should sleep on their tummies or on their backs. And while all these things deserve our wise consideration, they only exist because old death is still loose in the scrub but there's coming a day when God will take the final gulp and death will be no more. What's our assurance of that? Jesus Christ is risen, right? He has the power over the grave, right? This man who commands the four-day corpse of Lazarus, you come out and he comes out. And then Christ Himself enters death. Why? Why enter death if you have the power over death? Because He entered death for our sake. He took our sins to the grave, endured their consequences, and then blew the hinges off the gate. Three days later, He came out. He entered death to defeat its hold on us. Death had no hold on Jesus. It had a hold on us because we were sinners. It has no hold on Jesus because he wasn't a sinner. Scripture says that God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was impossible for Jesus to be held by it. And that makes him unique. No one has ever stepped out of the grave, never to die again. All the... Little resurrections and things you see throughout Scripture. Even Lazarus coming out of the grave. They all rose to die again. Jesus rose never to die again. Makes Him unique. Therefore, if you belong to Christ, death doesn't get the final word over you. Christ does. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. ...says this. When the perishable... ...puts on the imperishable... ...and the mortal... ...puts on immortality... ...then shall come to pass... ...the saying that is written... ...death is swallowed up... ...in victory. So that's our text... ...from Isaiah 25... ...verse 7. Then he goes on. O death, where is your victory... Oh, death, where is your sting? He's mocking death. He's mocking. Him. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's your guarantee. Jesus is risen from the dead. The next blessing comes in Isaiah 25, verse 8. And that's comfort from all sorrows. Comfort from all sorrows. Isaiah 25, 8 says, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So those who dwell in Zion will have all their sorrows taken away. Remember, the city of man will be turned into a city with nothing but sighs and sorrows. Not on Mount Zion. On Mount Zion... All the people have their sorrows taken away. And Isaiah could have just said that God will take away our sorrow. But instead, he depicts, he, he he gives us a picture here. He makes it far more personal where you have the Lord wiping the tear of each and every face in his kingdom. So the same one who rules with absolute sovereign power, he draws near like a parent to wipe the tears from the face of each of His children. And then finally, the Lord also blesses His people by removing their reproach. By removing their reproach. This is verse 8 again. The reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Reproach has to do with shame it you know it could be the shame experienced as the result of personal sin it could be the shame caused by other people's sinful treatment throughout the exile israel wore both kinds of shame and you may wear both kinds of shame you know that what you've done is wrong you know that what you've done has been against god's laws and you feel shame because of it. Or someone else has caused you shame. Maybe they've taken advantage of you and left you behind with shame. With sin in this world comes shame. And we've, seen, we, we, we've known this ever since Adam and Eve hid themselves from God in shame in the garden. But on the Lord's mountain there will be no shame. No reproach. Why? Because He will take it all away. This is the reason why He made His own Son a shameful spectacle on the cross. To clothe you all with honor. Your reproach, all of them, fell on Jesus that you might enter God's banquet unashamed, accepted before Him, totally free from all kinds of fear. He welcomes us to eat from His table without shame, with unhindered intimacy. This is the reason the church of Jesus Christ sings sings. This is why we rejoice in what the Lord has done for us. That's where Isaiah goes next. Look at, look at verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Now, now Israel had to wait for this day to come. And in a lot of ways, we're still waiting for that day to come. But, in another sense, the day of rejoicing has already begun. You know why? Because the New Testament calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. That doesn't just mean that he defeated death itself, but that he, de- that he was the first out of the grave of a whole lot of other people who hadn't made it out of the grave yet. Make sense? He's our forerunner and our assurance that God will also raise us from the dead. And therefore, we can say now, even in this day, Behold, this is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. See, what happens is the Old Testament expected there to be this one great resurrection at the end of time. Right? Well, what Jesus' resurrection does is it breaks the the final resurrection into two stages. Stage one, Jesus raises from the dead. Stage two, everybody else, all this people raised from the dead, right? So in a sense, we live in this now, this age of the already, the not yet. The resurrection has begun in Christ. And we're just waiting for ours. So we can rejoice too. For those of you in Christ... You already belong to God's mountain. As Hebrews 12, we read earlier, He's already welcomed you to Mount Zion. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, so behold your God and rejoice. Your future isn't determined by the shame of your past or the evils of this present age. If you truly belong to Christ, these promises of Mount Zion are your future. You're reading your future right here. This Word of God will create that future for you. Guaranteed. The Lord will put all His enemies beneath His feet, but His hand will rest on this mountain. His hand will raise you up and seat you with Him in the new city that is to come. And His hand will wipe your tears and spread you a feast for eternity. Yes, 10,000 futilities will gray your days now. Political leaders will scoff and boast and make grievous decisions. Rebellion may bloody the streets and end up saddening our homes as well. But don't let any of it squelch your hope in Christ our greatest enemy he has already defeated okay with him there's coming a day when the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the lord of hosts reigns and before his elders there will be glory glory like we we will see true glory we will see him as he is and all will be well All will be holy. All will be right. Some of you, though, have been duped by the city of man. You've believed its promises. You've believed its political leaders. You've believed the lies. You've thrown up your hands and given yourself to its fleeting pleasures. You've tried the Bible, but it's not as immediately gratifying as what the world offers. You've even started to conclude... That your way is better, your way is easier, and your way will bring you more joy, more power, more satisfaction, and more intimacy. And I will say that's one way to live. But God's word is clear. Your little party in the city of man will end. And God will end it and consign every citizen of that city to an eternity of misery. The only song that will prevail throughout all eternity is that of the redeemed on Mount Zion. The only feasts that will never end will be those of the redeemed on Mount Zion. The only joys that will be truly full and all-satisfying are those God gives to His redeemed in His presence on Mount Zion. So don't live for the city of man. Live for the city of God. Give your life to have God on His mountain. Live for true pleasures, right? God's not... I mean, you read the Bible, God's not... You're not being robbed from pleasure. If God says, follow me, not the world, you're not being robbed from pleasure. He's delivering you from the lesser pleasures the world gives to give you real pleasures. I mean, who else prepares a feast like this? That lasts forever. Who else can swallow death? Nobody. Who else rules the nations and yet comes to His children and wipes their tears? God is winning us to true pleasures in Christ. So live for the true pleasures in His kingdom. If you're here today without Christ, with no real hope, with with all your sin and shame, if you've been giving yourself to the city of man, that that evil world system that opposes God and oppresses others, you need to know that God has opened a way for you to enter His kingdom. He's opened a way for you to come onto His mountain that He is exalting above all other mountains. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ. Take Christ at His word. Don't bank on your works or your goodness to get you in. It won't work. Bank on His cross and His works and His resurrection to get you in. Give to Christ your allegiance and these promises that we've talked about today will be yours for eternity. How do I know they can be yours? Because verse 6 says that the Lord will make a feast of rich food for all peoples. All peoples. God's kingdom will have representative from all kinds of peoples. That also means that all peoples need to hear. All peoples need to hear of the Lord's grace in Jesus Christ. If they're to escape the judgment. If they're to enjoy the presence of God in His kingdom. They must hear the good news that we've heard today. Mount Zion is going up, brothers and sisters, and none of us can stop it. God has appointed his king to rule from it already. He's replacing all rebel kingdoms with his own, and until then, let us join him in gathering the peoples who will enjoy his presence on that day. Revelation chapter 21 speaks of them all. It says that he will dwell with them, Let's sing of this day together now as a body.